0: Hello, church. If you would open up Revelation 19. Revelation chapter 19. I'm going to start reading in verse 6. This is the Word of God. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints the angel said to me write this blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb and he said to me these are the true words of god then i fell down at his feet and worshiped him but he said to me you must not do that for i am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of jesus worship god For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And so Lord, again, uh, we pray for that spirit of prophecy, that testimony of Jesus to go forth. Lord, that we would hear your word as your word. Lord, that we would get a vision for the Son of God after a bride. And Lord, that you would use it to change our marriages. Uh, Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me start by uh, saying that I believe that in every generation, uh, the church has been called to manifest the wisdom of God uh, by embodying the God-ordained marriage design. Uh, I think we are largely in the cultural mess that we're in today uh, because many Christian marriages don't look very Christian. Um I said last week something along the lines of our apologetic therefore must be uh, aside from just railing at all that that is wrong uh, our primary apologetic for a confused culture is to say look at our happy marriages they work because God made them work and um but here here's the reality is that I uh I would have to say, I think many of you would agree with me that many Christians can't even begin to uh to do this for the culture because they many many Christians have not seen the glory of marriage themselves um, now i don't I don't believe that the divorce rate you know you hear things uh, the divorce rate in the church is as high as in the culture. Uh, there's many who've dispelled that uh statistically i I do not agree with that. Uh, statistic. However, I also don't think that marriages in the church are what they should be. Um, I I don't think we can even confess our failures in marriage like we should because we haven't seen marriage rightly uh, oftentimes. I, I don't think we can grow and progress in our marriages because we have not rightly seen what the scripture teaches about marriage. And so my my goal in this series is not to kind of pull our, uh, our views of marriage out of the gutter. I'm not speaking to the culture. Uh, I don't think our views of marriage are in the, the gutter. But I do think, even in this church, we have made common what God has called holy. Uh, that we have taken something extremely sacred and we've made it very average and common. And so my goal for these coming weeks is to really exalt marriage as the Lord has exalted it. Um, The way that we did that last week in the opening uh, sermon to this series was we talked about Trinitarian marriages. And what I did not mean by that was that our marriages involve three, as in husband, wife, God. Um, Now, there's some truth in that, I I suppose, in a Christian marriage, but that's not what I mean by Trinitarian marriages. What I meant uh, was that God is a one with multiples, that Uh, that as God is a one with multiples, so is marriage. And I I pointed to that Hebrew word for one that that it says in Genesis 2.24, the two shall become one flesh, which means one there, uh, one with multiples. And, And it's the same word used in Deuteronomy 6 when it says the Lord our God, the Lord is one and so as God is one with multiples, so the marriage union is one with multiples. It's Trinitarian in that sense. And uh, the whole point of, of, of putting that before us is so that hopefully we, uh, marriage can be more exalted and we can see this thing's not common. This is not common. Um, guys, there, there's a lot of good marriage books out there, good marriage seminars that will get very, very practical. Uh, and we will get there eventually in the series, but we cannot start with the practicalities we can't uh, in fact i don 't intend to say for a number of weeks anything practical i don 't intend to give you a command as a husband or a wife at all uh, for a couple of weeks and i think I, I think that much of the marriage teaching falls short and actually works to make common marriages oftentimes because they never get out of the practical. I think that's precisely uh, the problem in many, many cases. Why why can a counselor sit with a a husband or wife and say, husband, love your wife, and wife, respect your husband, and it just doesn't land with any weight or glory? Why would that be? And and I would argue, it's not because they aren't saying something biblical or that isn't God's Word. It's because oftentimes we take a, a verse in marriage and we pull it out of its larger covenantal framework in Scripture. We just pull it over here aside, apart from what the rest of the Bible says about marriage. And so it lacks glory, it lacks weight, because it's often removed from its overall biblical context And so, where do we start? Well, I think we have to start by saying that the Bible is a book about marriage. It starts with marriage and it ends with marriage. And take any book, okay? We read books, if you read in the intro something about marriage and you read in the conclusion something about marriage, you might conclude this book's about marriage. And here in this Word of God, we find in Genesis Marriage. Right at the beginning, first few pages. And at the very end, chapters 19, 20, 21, 22, marriage. Uh, The beginning and the end is marriage. And this book is a book about marriage. It's really more profound than just saying it's the beginning and the end is, is about marriage. Because when you look at that marriage at the beginning and that marriage at the end, what you actually realize about those two marriages is... They're perfect. They're actually the only two perfect marriages that we find. Uh, The first marriage in the garden was before sin entered the world. And the last marriage in heaven is after sin has been removed from the world. And if you had never read this book, pretend you'd never read the Bible and you just open it up for the first time and you begin to read in Genesis 1, what are you going to see? You're going to see this cosmic vision uh, of God. That God is speaking the cosmos into existence with His words. And, you're in, and you just see this massive view of God. Then you get to chapter 2 and what are you going to see? You're going to expect to see that, that, that massive vision of God carried on. But what, are you, what you're going to find is a man and a woman who fall in love and get married. And you might go, am I missing something here? Um, I think it, it oftentimes isn't until you get to the end of the Bible that you realize, oh, I see why the marriage and the beginning is what it is. It is grand and glorious. I just didn't see it until the end. And it all comes together. The Bible is designed so that the eschatology, the last things, actually illuminate the proctology, the first things. Once we get to the end of the Bible, we can look back to the beginning and finally understand Adam and Eve. Uh, That's how the Bible is structured. One theologian calls Genesis 2 a prophetic whisper of that future marriage between Christ and the church. And so I think if we were to say the the whole biblical storyline is essentially God saying to his bride, I love you, but I lost you, and I must have you back. That's really the storyline of the Bible. If it, were, if, if, if it were a movie, it would be in two scenes. Uh, the first scene would be the bride has been lost. And it would show three great enemies of the bride. And then the second scene would be the bride recovered. And it would show the fury of the groom to take on all of the enemies of the bride so that he can rescue her and be with her forever. That is the story of the Bible. And we actually have categories for this uh, without even reading the Bible. Uh, We have categories in in our culture for this. Every great romance movie or book has some sort of opposition to the romance. Um, People or things or circumstances that are hindering the romance of that couple, the the, the being together of that couple. Every great war movie or book has some romance plot within it, a a battle uh, that that, uh, that the warrior is trying to protect or defend or deliver his bride or, want, or, or desired bride and to have her for himself. And it's not that all those stories are, co- are it's not that the Bible is copying those stories, it's that those stories are actually copying the marital narrative from Scripture. Uh, it is the ultimate narrative. And so I'm suggesting that the Bible is God's message of marital love to His people who would receive Him. Uh, Of all the metaphors the Bible has, and it has many metaphors, the strongest metaphor for the gospel is marriage. Um, We had, I think we have three couples in the church right now that are engaged. Actually, two. Two that are engaged because the Grand Prix's got uh, married on Friday. And when, when that, uh, that couple is at the wedding altar and they're standing there, uh, what are they doing? Well, the man is standing there as an image of the Son of God before his bride saying, I give myself fully to you. And she says to him, I do. And he says, I do. And then God the Father puts his stamp of approval and union on that covenant marriage. And that's a picture of our covenant union with God. We can't truly understand the story of the Bible apart from understanding it in a marital way. We can't understand the love of God without understanding it in a marital way. So I want to unpack these two scenes for us. Scene one, the bride lost. Let's go to Genesis 2 for a moment. Uh, as you're turning there, we see God as a father figure here uh, with Adam. He puts Adam in the garden to work and keep it. So Adam's learning to work, have dominion from his father. And his father recognizes it's not good that my son is alone. Even though he has God with him, he, he still recognizes it's not good that Adam alone. Verse 18, Genesis 2. It is not good that he's alone. I will make a helper fit for him. So the animals will not do, verse 20. For Adam was there, there was not found a helper fit for, to complement, to complete him. So what does God do? God provides a wife for his son, verse 21. The Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. You hear it? The father bringing his bride to the groom. Down the aisle for Adam to marry, he gives Adam a wife. And Adam's a little bit more than excited to receive her. He sings to God and to her, verse 23, Then the man said, This is at last bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And all of that leads up to this climactic moment we talked about last week, Genesis two twenty-four. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This ideal Perfect marriage before sin, before shame, before guilt enters the world. It says, verse 25, they were naked and not ashamed. No fear of the other leaving. No fear of divorce. No fear of abuse. No fear of mistreatment. No fear of neglect. No fear of their spouse's apathy or mistreatment in any way. Just this perfect marriage that lasted we don't know how long but not that long. And I want to suggest that what messed up that marriage is what messes up ours. When a, when a counselor sits before a couple and says, what, what are you here for? What can I help you with? Um, many times, uh, couples will say, well, he does this and you know, she's not doing this and you know, we can't communicate about this issue. And, and here's what I'd like to suggest, church. The same problems Adam and Eve encountered in their marriage are the same problems that you deal with in yours. And their marriage, mind you, was in a perfect paradise. And yet God allowed an opposition. How can you not expect opposition in yours? The opposition of the world, the flesh, and the devil is an unavoidable reality in every marriage. I don't care how godly you are. I don't care how godly your spouse is. I don't care how much theology you know or how many marriage sermons or how much you teach others about marriage. You can't escape this threefold enemy of the world, the flesh, and the devil. It is a constant, constant experience in our marriage. And what messed up their marriage is the same threefold enemy messing up ours. Look at this first enemy of the devil. Entering into their perfect little marriage. Genesis 3 verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say? And he lies and seduces her and deceives her and Adam and they fall. And I, I would just remind us that every marriage after that moment is, a is in a post-Adenic context where the enemy follows them out of the garden and pursues every couple like he pursued them. Where the flesh is what is enticed by this enemy's lies and temptations. And what do we even call the world, a few chapters into the Bible, we see Babel, which will later become Babylon, which is a significant uh, identifier of the world in Revelation. We'll get there in a minute. So Christian marriages can't escape uh, these fallen realities. We're assaulted by them daily. uh, And they're all interconnected. There's this weaving together of all three of these realities. I mean, what is the devil apart from his lies and temptations? What are the lies and temptations apart from our flesh that is lured and enticed by those? And and, and what is this place where these demonic lies and temptations and fallen desires exist? It is the world. And I want to remind us of this reality. It's very hopeful. There is an already not yet sense to our relationship with these enemies or these threefold enemies. There is a sense in which for the Christian, the world and the flesh and the devil have no eternal danger. Cause no eternal danger to you. And there's another sense in which the world, the flesh, and the devil is why you have every single marriage problem you have. Here, let me put some Scripture behind this. Uh, Paul's speaking to the Ephesian church, which we should remember the Ephesian church got the best marriage teaching in the New Testament, Um, but he says to them about this threefold enemy in chapter 2 verse 1, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit, this is demonic spirit, that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh carrying out the the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now here's the thing I want to point out. All of that is past tense. Once walked according to this world. Once lived according to the flesh. Once... We're children of the devil, enslaved to this course of this world. It's all past tense. And you say, okay, if all that's past tense, why are we dealing with the world, the flesh, and the devil in our own marriages? And I would say because this enemy is dead and dying. Uh, we are not enslaved. We are not, in, uh, we are not to be identified with the world uh, these things are, are not who we are any longer. However, Paul also speaks to this same church in Ephesus in the present tense regarding the world, the flesh, and the devil. So it says in Ephesians 4 put off your old self, old fleshly self. Ephesians 4 uh, 27, give no opportunity to the devil. Present tense. Uh, Ephesians 6.11, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Those are present tense imperatives, things that we have to deal with right now. And again, this is the same Christian marriages who would have heard those teachings from Ephesians 5 about Christ and the church. He's saying to those same Christians, this is your opposition in your marriage. And it's a present tense reality. And here's what this means. Your spouse isn't your enemy. Your spouse isn't your enemy. Which is exactly what many people forget. But, listen, lest you hear that too hard, I get it. I understand why many times we think our spouse is our enemy. Because the the serpent is very crafty. And he actually works through a spouse or a person. Satan influenced Saul's heart to hate and pursue David to kill him. Satan put into the heart of Judas to betray Jesus. Satan somehow influenced Peter's words so that when Peter spoke to Jesus, Jesus said to him, what? Get behind me, Satan. And Satan wasn't absent from Job's wife. Her words when she said to him in his lowest moment, curse God and die. And so many people mistake their, uh, their spouse for their enemy because oftentimes the enemy speaks through and uses a spouse. But guess what? We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. Our spouse is not our enemy. And it's essential to remember that. Why do we need to know what is against our marriages? Two reasons. So that we don't, like Adam in the garden point at our wife when God calls us to account and say, it's her fault. The woman made me do it. While well, he doesn't realize, Adam, that he has three fingers pointing back at himself and the enemy's over there laughing at him. And here's the other reason that we need to understand our enemy. Because the ultimate solution to all of our marriage problems is the ultimate solution to all of our problems. Christ destroying these enemies, which leads to the second scene. The bride that's been lost is now pursued. Look, there there is a sense in which Christ coming uh, to the earth is Christ coming to do what the first husband failed to do. Adam didn't protect his wife from the serpent. Adam didn't guard and defend her from the lies. Adam didn't... Crushed the head of the serpent when he could have and should have, and was, it says, standing right with her. He did nothing. And so Christ must enter as the second and greater husband to fix the problems the first husband failed to fix. And by the way, I don't think Eve sinned first, I think they fell together. And neither of them wanted God's authority as a husband or as a father figure. And as the Bible goes on, it shows the nature of this uh, Adam and Eve rebellion moves into Israel. And Israel is constantly called an adulterer. One who doesn't want a husband one who does not want covenant faithfulness to Yahweh, but prefers other lovers and other gods. Israel is continually tempted and drawn away by these devilish gods of Baal. So that all through the Old Testament, God, like a husband, is speaking to an unfaithful and adulterous woman, like in Hosea 2.2, plead with your mother, which is Israel, plead, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband. That she put away her whorings from her face and her adultery. God's speaking to Israel who's embodying the uh, unfaithfulness of Adam and Eve to God. And he's saying you're going after other gods and other lovers. And listen to the prophecy that I believe is about the church. Listen to Hosea 2.16. In that day, so he's looking forward, declares the Lord, You will call me my husband. And no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth. And they shall be remembered they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant. That is a new covenant uh, on that day. Verse 19. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. I believe that is a prophecy Hosea looking forward to the church as the faithful bride of Christ, what Israel never was. And I think that's confirmed in Ephesians 5 where it calls the church the bride of Christ. And I think it's confirmed numerous times in Revelation where it calls the church the bride of Christ. And, and think about this, as we move into the ministry of Jesus, this is interesting, many people overlook these type things. Jesus doing His first miracle. People go, what is that about? Water to wine? I thought Jesus was coming down to take out all these enemies. The devil and the world and the flesh. Why is he turning water to wine? Well, remember where he is when he does it. He's at a what? A wedding. He's at a wedding. Well, why is he doing his first miracle at a wedding? Well, it's to say to the bride, I'm coming for you. And I'm coming to take you to a marriage feast. And listen, the first miracle He does is at a wedding, but you know what all the rest of the miracles after that are about? His power over the world, the flesh, and the devil. As if to say to the bride, here's where I'm taking you, now let me deal with all your enemies sequentially. Look, I really believe that there is a sense in which when Jesus got to the cross, He dealt with those enemies. He he crushed the head of the serpent. On the cross, said it's finished. Days before his death and resurrection, Jesus said things like this I have overcome the world. Now is the judgment of this world. Now is the ruler of this world cast out. The, at the cross, and in his rising, we believe that happened. But there is another sense in which the bride still waits for Christ's final war against the world, the flesh, and the devil. And we pick this up in Revelation, and we'll be there the rest of our time. Revelation, there's two parallel visions that we need to see. Um, that John sees these visions, an angel comes to him uh, in both of these visions. You can Go to chapter 17. In both of these visions, he sees a woman. Actually, two different women. Now listen to how he describes the first woman. This is in chapter 17, verse 1. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bulls said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters and with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality. And with the wine of those whose sexual immorality the dwellers of the earth have become drunk. Verse 3, I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast. You hear it? The devil Symbolic, this is apocalyptic literature that was full of blasphemous names and seven in her hand a, go- a golden cup full of abominations and impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was, a name, was written a name of mystery. Babylon the Great, Mother of Prostitutes and of the earth's abominations. And jump forward one chapter into chapter 18 verse 3 and listen to this. The description goes on. For all the nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. And then I heard another voice from heaven saying, I believe to the bride, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. For her sins are heaped up as high as heaven. And God has remembered her iniquities. So this prostitute, representing the world, the flesh, and the devil, messed with Christ's bride. You don't do that. He messed with the bride of Christ And therefore, Christ shows no mercy. He comes out and slaughters her. In chapters 17, 18, and 19, He is jealous for her. And this this jealousy, this willingness to war, is deep in a man. Uh, You think about, why do young boys want to fight? Why do they want to take on dragons? What, why, why if they, if they uh, when they get a little older, why do they find video games so attractive where they can take on dragons? And they'll keep doing that unless they find a woman worth fighting for. There's something deep in a man to fight for a bride that's worthy to be fought for. Listen to his second vision. John's second vision of another woman. Jump to chapter 19. This is the woman who's been called out of Babylon. Chapter 19, verse 1. After this, I heard what seemed to be a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For His judgments are true and just. For He has judged the great prostitute who who corrupted the earth with her immorality. Verse 6. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of a mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory for or because the marriage of the Lamb has come. That immediately when I read that, throws my mind back to something Jesus said in a parable. Many of us know this parable. I want to read it for us in Matthew 22. The kingdom of heaven, Jesus said, may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. I believe that's Israel. Again, he sent other servants, saying, "Tell those who were invited, see, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast." But they, I believe Israel, paid no attention and went off. One to his farm, another to his business. While the rest seized his servants and treated them shamefully and killed them. And the king was angry and he sent him troops and destroyed those murders and burned their city. And he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready. But those invited were not worthy. Go therefore, go therefore, great commission language to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find, I believe Gentiles. And those servants went into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both the bad and the good, so that the wedding hall was filled with guests. He just told the whole story of the Bible through this parable of a marriage feast. It goes on, verse 11, but listen, He presses it. Jesus says, But when the king came in to look at the guests he saw that there was a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into outer darkness in the place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus said, many are called, but few are chosen. And the natural question that arises after reading that or hearing what Jesus said there is, what is the wedding garment? Because you, apparently you've got to have one. Back to John's vision in Revelation 19, verse 7. Look at this. The marriage of the Lamb has come. And listen to these. And His bride has made herself ready. And it was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. So at one level, His bride must make herself ready. She does make herself ready. She's not passive. She's, it says, preparing herself. This is like a woman getting ready on any marriage that we would go to here. She prepares herself. She gets dressed. She does her hair. She gets a nice dress. She presents herself, prepares to present herself, not just externally, at which she does want to look beautiful, but she is to also present herself to her husband in purity. And so it is with the bride of Christ. Verse 8, for the, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. In other words, uh, this isn't the desperate housewife. This isn't the woman who her husband goes off to war to fight for God, family, and cult, and, and country, and she's off being unfaithful. This isn't who the bride of Christ is. She's preparing herself. She's eagerly waiting. It says she has made herself ready. That's true. But listen, at another sense, in another sense, she knows the, the, the white, pure linen has been granted to me. Look at what it says there. Verse 8. It was gifted to her. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. So she knows I'm not a beauty queen of my own. He crossed over the tracks and found me roaming in the wrong neighborhoods with other lovers that I preferred over Him. He sought me. He drew me in. He beautified me. He gave me a pure linen dress. He won her heart. He gifted her her beauty. Guys, look, here's what I'm saying. When Christ returns, He's returning for a pure bride. Not perfect in every deed, but she has come out of Babylon and left her other lovers. She longs for a kingdom without evil or sin. She desires garments that cannot be stained anymore with sin. She longs for Christ's full and final cleansing and to save her from her enemies that continually taunt her. Revelation 21.9 says she can be identified. His bride, the wife of the Lamb. You can tell who she is. Because she eagerly waits for Him. She's waiting for Him. Hebrews 9.28 says Christ will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who eagerly wait for Him. Second Peter 3.10 says, The day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be living lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God? According to His promise, we are waiting for a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, beloved bride, since you are waiting for these things, be diligent to be found in Him without spot or blemish. Guys, this is the same bride that Revelation 21 says is coming down from heaven, from God, to be presented to Christ You think the Father is going to present to Christ something impure. I picture Christ on that day walking off the battlefield after defeating all of her enemies. Battle axe, sword still dripping with blood, blood spatter, and and He catches her eye. And He knows... There's nothing left to hinder our love. There is no enemy left to taunt or mess with my bride. I loved you, but I lost you. And I've come to get you back. It's been said that the heavens and the earth were created for Adam and Eve. But the new heavens and the new earth are created for Christ and the church. Guys, when when you read Revelation about this marriage, this marriage all of our marriages should reflect. You see a bride struggling and suffering even to remain faithful to Him. To be with Him. You see a bride assaulted by these threefold enemies of the world, the flesh, and the devil as she waits for Him and you see a husband who gives his own life to redeem her a, a, a husband who who suffers every power of hell and scheme of man to win her back brothers and sisters they're fighting for their marriage mutually fighting for the marriage to be back together and every christian marriage must I mean, how, how can you think you will have a blessed and happy marriage if you're not willing to fight for it? This is the nature of marriage. How can you think that you will have a blessed and happy marriage without suffering and denying self for the sake of your spouse? You will not. You must fight for your bride. Husbands. Wives. Struggling. To be together. That is the nature of And the context of our warfare. So I I hope guys. And we're going to look at Christ in the church again next week. I hope that this helps your marriage. But I hope even more. That you will see the love of Christ. Because that's what this is about. And as we know the love of Christ. There is something of an overflow. That can pour into our spouses. And it's how God has designed it. To work. Uh, as we prepare to go to the table, um, I hope this will prepare us to take this supper uh, in remembrance of Christ, celebrating, proclaiming Him. Uh, this table is for His bride. It's for His bride. Uh, those who have been washed and cleansed by His blood also have entered the baptismal waters. Uh, those who are waiting for Him come to the table. If that is you, if you'll be refraining today, uh, not baptized, not trusting and waiting for Christ, there are in your bulletin some meaningful prayers I would encourage you to read. Uh, let's take a few moments, prepare our hearts, let's come and celebrate Christ at the table. Father, uh, we just rejoice in You, Lord. We we know that Christ is a great Savior. A great warrior, a great lover, passionate for his bride. Lord, a bride that is often just struggling with the warfare of this threefold enemy. Lord, as we move into this week ahead of us, Lord, we know that that's what we will deal with. The world and the flesh and the devil. And so, Lord, would you remind us of these things and would you deepen our confidence that you have fought these battles. You will fight these battles fully and finally at your second coming. Lord, deepen our confidence in these things. We rejoice and we praise you that these things are true. Help us as we go to the table to rejoice in you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Bears our sins away, slain for us.